You are now listening to The Big Trade with Peter Pham, enlightening conversations for maximum market returns. I spent a lot of time in Vietnam where people, there's a, like a big trend called EB5. People really want to see if they can obtain, I guess, like a much more developed passport, which is the American one. But I, I guess for like them, in, in, yeah, that's, that's, actually, that's actually called jus pecuniae, which is citizenship by investment. Yes, yes, yes. I, I, <laughs> I, like, what are your thoughts on that, by the way? Well... Um, it's, there's a great book called Cosmopolites by uh, a journalist who used to work for Al Jazeera America until they closed, but she, she's, she was an editor there, but she's a, uh, uh, an independent journalist. Her name is Atusa Araxia Abrahamian. If okay. you look up Cosmo, Cosmopolites, it's a, a very kind of short, but re- really wonderful to the point book. And the subtitle is The Coming of the Global Citizen. And she actually has a whole chapter, or at least a, almost a whole chapter, on Gary Davis, the founder of World Service Authority. And she talks about this whole idea of investment um, for uh, to save ones, you know, either like certain of the wealthy people from, uh, what's the guy from um, uh, uh, eBay who like left the country, like the U.S. and gave oh, up that citizenship. Facebook, Facebook. Facebook. Just re- um, yeah, Facebook. It something. Yeah, moved it moved to like Sri Lanka where they wouldn't have to pay U.S. taxes. Right. <laughs> so right. people are buying citizenships. What's really interesting about this book, and I love it, not just because she mentions Gary Davis in it, but because she talks about how world citizenship now is for almost like the very poor and the very rich. It's getting to those people in the middle that is, is has been probably our most difficult uh, exercise so far. Um, but the, the very poor, because there are people like the Badoon, who's a, who's a, a, who is a population living in the United Arab Emirates, and the Emirates don't want them there. They don't want them to, to give them rights as citizens, because Emirati, Emirati citizens get a lot of good uh, schools and other benefits. So they don't want to give them that, even though these Badoon have been living there also for centuries. So they have bought them Comoro Island citizenship. <laughs> now, they don't expect these uh, Badoons to go to Comoros, because it's a small island off of Africa. Right. <laughs> they they just want, not, don't want to have to support, you know, support them with their own citizenship. So, the, for, so for the very poor, you might say, uh, like the Badoon, or for the very wealthy uh, people like you're talk, we, we just were talking about who, who have the money to buy. I mean, there's people who buy U.S. citizenship even. Yes, it, it is actually for it is actually for sale. Yes. So, uh, so um, it is you know it's an investment principle that I think for most people either as a tax haven depending on which the country they're doing it from for. Or it is a safety issue that they've got, you know, they're worried about their life should like the U.S. government collapse or something. They want to have another option. Or look at Brexit now. How many millions of of people have said, oh, my God, I better become Italian now if I want to stay in, you know, even though they're Brit, (laughs) if I want to stay in Europe. You know, or the opposite is true. There's, there's, you know, Italians in, in England who want to say I better become British or something or what do I do? Right, right. But, but I guess, remember, the thing, though, is that for the people in a lot of these, like, frontier markets is that they don't have the capital to make that kind of investment to True. obtain th- these kind of citizenships. So I, I, I guess the question is how, how – obviously, yours is much more economical, but does it, it – it might not allow them to necessarily go to the United States – but it might allow them to go to St. Kitts or something like that. I, I guess that's the constellation prize. <laughs> yes. I mean, the point is sometimes people come to World Service Authority because we're a quick fix or we're the only solution to their problem. Sometimes we're both. 
Sometimes we're neither. Right. Uh, and we always tell people, look, we never want anyone to have a false expectation that their rights will always be respected just by applying for the passport and getting it. They, right. you know, um, but you're right, though. Uh, using the world passport uh, for, for some people um, could get them, you know, still a better life than like, we, like, for example, a Syrian who's made their way to Turkey uh, and, and Turkey, you know, but they're not really getting what they need in Turkey. Or, for example, there was some uh, Benin refugees in, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, Nigerian refugees in Benin. Right. And they were having a horrible life in the, in the um, refugee camp. So they decided that they would get the world passport they did and they were able to get to South Africa. Mm. Uh, but but sadly, and this is the sad part, they found that it was almost worse being in South Africa because the government yeah. didn't want them there, just like Benin really didn't want them there. They couldn't find work. They were discriminated against, uh, probably almost worse. In the refugee camp, at least they had a few minimal basic needs met, like at least some food every day, at least some shelter, uh, at least some companionship. They were, you know, these couple men who, who did this that, that I'm aware of because they, they told us the story really found it a very difficult life once they, they fled to what they thought would be a much better life, uh, in a, you know, in a more developed country. And it just wasn't. This reminds but me so, of you know, like the, the uh, Jewish people that were trying to find a place to live during World War II, basically, and effectively getting denied true. by many different governments, oh, right? Oh. I mean, yeah, but I mean, how many boats of people, not just the, the Jews back in World War II, but since, like, you know, all yeah. the Haitian boats of, you know, Haitians coming uh, in the Gulf of Mexico trying to get to Florida, or now the, the boats of, of Syrians in the Mediterranean that capsized. I mean, this is, we, these are fellow human beings, and what are, what are we, we're allowing them to just die like they're, they're you know, rats or ants or i mean you know not not to defame rats or ants right <laughs> but just to say that we're not really considering them as as fellow human beings who we should be loving and caring for just because they're they speak a little bit of a different language or they sound different or they look different or they practice a different faith it's none of that should matter isn't it economically though how it needs to be where you do discriminate to that extent? I mean, because I have to unfortunately I have to think about the dollars and cents components. I read this really interesting thing about how even the two-dimensional version of the global map is skewed towards accentuating the sizes of the northern countries and actually not showing the magnitude of size and um, scale of everything in the South, like the Africas, like the Brazils, even though they're big, but from a two-dimensional perspective, it does seem to have um, a massive bias towards accentuating, you know, probably like the, the, yeah, the developed the North. Isn't that yeah, interesting? Well, <laughs> have, you, have you ever heard of the Dymaxian map? Oh, is that the look, equal one? The one that makes it look more appropriate? Like It, it actually di displays the Earth to, in appropriate size. Proportions. That's right. So the value of each space yeah. is actually what it is on the planet. And that was created by, I think, Buckminster Fuller, the Correct. eminent cybernetician who also created the geodesic dome. So look up Dymaxion, D-Y-M-A-X-I-O-N, Dymaxion map, and you'll see what I'm talking about. But yeah, no, you're you're right. I think, I, I mean, you're right about the the... the, the undervaluing of parts of the world and the overvaluing maybe of others or the unequal the inequality i guess is what you're bringing up mm -hmm. but you first you started off saying doesn't it have to be this way and of course not <laughs> it doesn't have <laughs> I mean, to I mean, be this in way in terms of the, the, the current it's the way the world is gone yes, I mean, you talk yes, about yes. this 
you talked about this with Doug Casey a little bit about you know who's in power and who should be in power and and why and um, and of course, I'm coming from a framework that says there is massive inequality, both inequality of opportunity and, and definitely inequality of outcome. And, and, but to really get to your point, which I did, I, I started losing my train of thought when I was telling you this earlier, but it was the idea that war wastes so many human and natural resources is killing that if we just got rid of war and, um, and, and all the money that we spend on war and put it towards positive things like creating uh, homes and providing education and clean water and developing solar and other renewable energies, mm. we could have a wonderful world where everyone would have their needs met. But just think about even one bomber plane that, that the U.S. government, uh, you know, uh, contracts to make so much of that money could feed you know thousands of people for for hundreds of years <laughs> well so the, i it's, think it's, i think it's the ridiculous. counter to that and and because it's a, it's an interesting point and and then i think the counter to this is this is that if you first off value creation is very difficult to do actually believe it or not like so if you're talking about creating fantastic infrastructure and you're building like this amazing country by deploying all this capital to do so, it's actually very hard, especially if you're on the forefront, say, economic development. But think about it like this. What if I blew up a country mm-hmm. and then went through the same approach and methodology towards economic, social, uh, political development that has already been set through various different pre- precedences um, by other countries? It's much easier to start from a um, this is terrible to say it like this, but it's easier to start from zero and like then go slate. through uh, yeah, a blank slate and then go through that same familiar course, which all the academics would then and all the advisors and consultants can start to implement the, the traditional path. So I, I've been researching about, like, say, for example, the development of Asia, and it goes through uh, the first critical component. Let's say you start from a blank slate is land reform. After you improve the land reform, then you're thinking about the agriculture um, reform and how are you going to collectivize it or are you going to allow for independent farmers to manage? Hypothetically, if your country had the geographical features to provide agriculture, for example, and then you'd have to think about manufacturing, right? And then after manufacturing, probably the crescendo of that is the financial services and, and how they will help assist, um, for example, the rest of the economy. Now, that's a pathway that is very easily understood and can be implemented if you're starting from a blank slate. Now, unfortunately, say let's say you're on the America side. From a business model perspective, how do you evolve as the innovator, basically, right? The world leader in um, all of these aspects already and how do you think about going further and creating more value it's very tricky and think about it like this what if you had war and then you were able to create blank slates in other countries and then use that same component of stimulus to grow those countries and also um, intertwining your economics with that state as well so i'm not thinking because many people talk about the military industrial complex and how beneficial it is to society, but I think, and they, they provide the numbers for it, but they don't show the um, 
financial impact of creating basically a puppet state. So they'll talk about the military expenditure and then compare that to the value that is lost by reinvesting it into, say, education, infrastructure, and stuff like that into like the United States. But what about creating a, another puppet state and analyzing the trade components, for example, like look at the Japans and the Koreas of the world and how it has affected global trade for the country that had a big impact in basically creating a blank slate. That's a... Well, yeah. <laughs> I'm not wow, saying it's a good thing, by the way. That's a lot of... I'm not saying it's about. a good thing, but I'm trying to, un what we try to do is we try to understand the causality and why it is the way that it sure. is. Well, so what, two things come to mind uh, when you say all that, which don't, doesn't really perhaps give an exact answer or, or response directly, but what, the, talking about whether it's land reform and then manufacturing and financial service, it's all like a pro progression from zero to, to something that we might see what we have in places in the world like in the U.S. or Canada where it's functioning. Correct. But that means you're automatically valuing the idea of business, yes. the idea of, of production. And I guess I'm and then so that that's one aspect to what you're saying, um, and then maybe by having business and and uh, producing, we can then the benefits can then go to education and infrastructure later on, and so maybe we do need some of that. But then, so the other point that comes to mind is, and I don't know if you've ever heard of him. I don't think he's still alive, but he would be an amazing person to have on your show. Okay, and his name is Jacques Fresco. Okay. Um, and Jacques, and it's uh, Jacques Fresco created the Venus Project, and he's not affiliated with us or World Service Authority in any way. Okay. But his idea, he's also kind of like a cybernetician, like Buckminster Fuller, and he's also kind of a, a unique individual, like Gary Davis was, mm. uh, who's promoting a world that would be uh, automated, so automated that the you know the machines would do the drudgery, and that would leave the rest of um, the things to do on the planet like art and poetry and, and music and maybe some, you know, infrastructure things that machines just can't do, whatever, right. to, to humans so that our life would not be so based upon, you know, this idea of, you know, we have to have, you know, at least 2% or 5% growth every year, which, right. you know, in the end is going to destroy the planet or that we have to have a business model of, uh, you know, I'm better than you because I make more money or, uh, right. you know, so success driven where success we could find in, in nature or success we could can, uh, find in being able to, you know, one day paint a painting rather than having to quote unquote go to work. In fact, I read an amazing, I don't know who it was, I saw it was on my Twitter feed, an amazing article from, from some, I think, a professor talking about how work, work, maybe we shouldn't be valuing work, maybe we should be valuing no work. <laughs> that we mm. could have a, a much better world if people could be happy doing fun things that, that make them happy rather than the day-to-day the, the -day drudgery that machines could do. What's so interesting, those are the two ideas that come to mind. Yeah, what's interesting about that is actually it is kind of happening and I heard that it's, I, I heard that when Trump has been convincing a lot of these American companies to still stay in America, the, mm -hmm. the misunderstanding is that all those jobs will remain. But I think that the, the solution to that, according to some of the executives of the companies that are uh, deciding to still stay back, is that they're going to focus a little bit on automation. So it's, sure. it's kind of an interesting way to, to um, present the case, which is, hey, I'm keeping all these uh, companies in America, and therefore people automatically assume that that same workforce is not only going to stay, and maybe it will even expand and grow, which sounds very interesting. But actually, the way that 
they can stay to make it economically viable, as opposed to say moving to Mexico, is to implement automation, which isn't discussed about a lot based on the message, the positive message、um, that is、sure. being released in the media right now. No, definitely. Yeah, no. I, yeah, I, I see this coming, and and I I see it as a positive thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's interesting. It's just it's just it, in, if you're going to tell that story as opposed to distorting it by having people think that it means more jobs, the reality is it's going to mean less jobs. But then the question is, what will those people do? Because ultimately,、right. I, I think the the and I have conversations with a lot of people about this is that. Many of the wealthiest companies in the world are not just because they're simply profiteers, but the truth is they're actually creating the most value. And、yes. I think the key thing is the value creation component. So,、um, what we do is we tie it with the economics of it. But basically, hypothetically, if you're creating art, hopefully it's bringing as much utility to to, to society and individuals as possible. And if it is providing that much. Extent of utility. There needs to be some kind of reward for that individual in order to continue to do so. How、sure. you're going to be able to motivate people? These are questions beyond us, basically, because、um, it, it, it involves maybe creating a government or an economic system,、um, a whole way of rethinking things. But、um, th- th- somehow that that I think money has been a good motivator for a period of time. It's not the best way to do that.、Right. But、um, right. somehow you got to get that out of people to be producing great arts and great works and great technologies to some extent. Well, I mean, everything I read about the millennials, and I'm I'm, I'm middle aged myself. I'm not、right. no way near close to millennial, but is that they don't value the、um, the money as much as they value the ability to. Maybe take off at four o'clock in the afternoon and go have their latte at Starbucks or something, or go and you know go out and throw the frisbee or something. You know, I mean, it's、uh, it, it's much more. I want to live my life for the here and now. Maybe it is sort of the feeling of having a, a quicker,、um, what's the word?、Um, uh, uh, I can't think of the word I'm looking for.、Um, yeah,、uh, just a, a quick fix. You know what、right. I mean? Because.、Uh, Uh, people lose interest very quickly nowadays. Younger people, it seems to me. But, but David,、uh, you know, still- for for the millennials, you got to be more pragmatic about it. Like, okay, so I get it that you want that freedom, and I believe what is lacking in the United States, for example, is the magnitude of、um, small to medium enterprises and the stimulus that、right. they're going to get. So, if you're doing、True. something that you love, it really doesn't matter about the hours that's involved to that. You're you're willing to go full fledged onto it, and it's. It's it's. I think that's more about individual responsibility. It's about hey, why don't you pick something that you really love and make that into、um, a way that you can earn a living to some extent. And then suddenly the whole thing about counting hours or not hours is that that, that becomes a whole different conversation. There's、um, a book by a gentleman named Tim Ferriss. It's called The Four Hour Workweek. It talks about automation, optimization, having outsourcing, for example,、uh, to create what he calls like a lifestyle design. Well, essentially, the title sounds interesting: four hours、uh, working of a week. But that's not the truth because if you really love what you're going to do, you're probably going to end up working more than forty, fifty, sixty, seventy, eighty hours、um, a week, basically.、Yeah. And and that's I. I As as I, I get it, I get it that certain things are the way that they are, but you, that's where the whole component of individual liberty is there. I don't think in any society you're ever just going to have here's the blueprint, guys, and just follow that. And if you do, then I think you're foolish to 
to, to, to do that. And I don't think any state ever can accentuate that. Your parents might tell you that and say, hey, you know, finish school. This is a very Asian mentality. You know, I get high grades, uh, you know, get a good job, ultimately get married and have kids. That's, I guess, the white picket fence idea in America as well. But, you know, right. it's, it's, it's you. You got to find that thing. And I don't think the benefits of um, right now the global economy is you do have that. It's not easy by any means. And th that's the thing is that you haven't created enough value in society for it to be easy for you right off the bat. So say you have some millennial just says, hey, I want to do all these amazing things and I want to spend my time doing the things that I love. People got to reciprocate that. And I think the business model of something like YouTube is very interesting in which if you're just creating compelling video, you can monetize that. And you don't even have to focus about the monetization of that. You just focus on talking about what you like and make sure that's high quality. Yep, definitely. Yeah, I mean, it's really democratized. Um, well, I don't know if it's democratized business uh, so much as it's just made people able to Get it, get their foot into the economy a little right. bit more easily. Yeah. Right. So, anyways, David, we I've taken up way too much of your time. I did <laughs> want to talk to you uh, just quickly about. I love to um, get an express method of getting this uh, passport. I don't know how I'm sure. going to use it exactly, but it would seem interesting to have because you know, if you get a visa, you can only get a visa on that one passport. So it would be kind of weird if you applied for two. You know what I mean? And then if I apply for one, then say it gets rejected on the world passport, then I have to then chuck out my Canadian one. It's kind of a pain. I don't know what I do with it, but uh, well, I would say use your Canadian passport. And like uh, I had a colleague who, and I would, by the way, I would be careful about using it in Canada potentially, or even the United States, because they may, they might even try to confiscate it potentially. Yeah. Although they, they hopefully, if they saw you present them both together, that they, they shouldn't. Um, but they, you know, you come across some. Uh, uh, uneducated or untrained border official, and they might. But mm, mm. Uh, anyway, but you like I had a colleague who went to the uh, Olympics in Vancouver uh, right. back in what was that, 2010? Okay. He at the same time he showed his world passport and his U.S. passport, and it was very interesting. The Canadian official said to him, "Oh, would you like me to stamp your other passport?" And he said, "Yes," and she did. Mm. So he got a Canadian entry stamp to go to the Olympics. <laughs> so you're, um, you're able to get, like, they're allowed to give you a double down where they can put a stamp on both passports. They can. At the at a frontier post, you could try to get a stamp in both. And the way to do it is say, oh, this is my international one, my, my UN mandated. Because mm. it is mandated by the Declaration of Human Rights. So mm -hmm. you, could, you could, as long as you sort of know the words. And by the way. I have a video on our YouTube channel called the the ten P's. That is the letter P, the little little letter S. The okay. ten P's of passport usage. Okay. You, that's me talking, you know, at a, for about fifty minutes about uh, uh, you know being polite, professional, persuasive, persistent, and the things that you should know. Uh, all starting with the letter P. Right, right, <laughs> um, right. Uh, like your name, Peter Graham. Yeah, there's I, two I, P's there. There's two P's. I, I was <laughs> going to say. <laughs> That's really funny. Um, so you you take a look at that. If you are, really are serious about getting the world password, you might want to watch that video. Of course, we do send out some amount of information with the world password to help you to know how to use it and a copy of the Declaration of Human Rights, etc. Right. right. Uh, but you know, we're happy to help you along the way. And of course, the worst thing would be that if you got detained or if the password were confiscated while you're trying to use it. And so certainly, it's, certainly, I would uh, encourage you to um, get our help. To, to you know, get our backup from our legal department. We can even write a legal validity letter that mm. affirms that you're authorized holder of the passport. Mm. And you can present that to a particular consulate. I mean, what the way the the basic 
initial strategy when you're using a world password is try to get a visa from any country. It's not, yeah. It doesn't have to be a country that you even want to go to. It right. could be Togo. It could yeah. be Guinea. It could be D Dominican Republic. It doesn't matter. Right. You get a visa from any of those governments. You don't have to go there, but as long as you have your password stamped within it, uh, with a stamp, again, getting that first one is always the hardest. Once you right. have even one stamp, then you can get other stamps because a government official, it's they're like it's like a psychological yeah. tool in a sense. First come, Once first serve. Once they one, then right. they're going to be like, oh, it must be valid. You yeah, know? But yeah, if yeah. that's blank, then they're going to question it. Right, right, right. What about, because as you know, I do a lot of media. What about mm -hmm. the media card? Can I apply for that? And yeah, what course. is the best way to utilize that? So the World Media Association press card is meant to help people to exercise, uh, of course, Article 19 of the Declaration, which means everyone has the right to freedom of expression. And mm. it's, it's, it's in seven languages. The, the, the seven languages we, which we use are English, French, Spanish, Russian, Chinese, Arabic, and Esperanto. Right. So I guess if in a place where they don't like seeing a, an English-only press card, this might be helpful for that. Okay. Um, if you also, for some reason, don't want to be known, if, if you belong to like the Canadian... Um, uh, you know, broadcasters association yeah, or whatever yeah. it is, and you don't want to be known strictly as Canadian. This could be helpful in that respect. I mean, because right. you could either enter the specific journalist or uh, media uh, outlet that you work for, right. or you could even just put um, a freelance journalist if you wanted to. Right. So, so um, I mean, there's cases where you know people have found it effective to attend various events. If and uh, certainly for for new media people, you know, new to media who may not have uh, an official press pass from some major, you know, like CNN or, or, right. or MSNBC or something like that. Right, right. Thank you, David. Take care. Okay, well, thank you, Peter. Have a great day. Okay, you too. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this mastermind session. If you'd like to contact Peter Pham or Phoenix Capital, please email info at phx-cap.com.